If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Science and religion have always been at war, right? Well, apparently not. As Nicholas Spencer reveals in his new book, Magisteria, This view is a myth that took root in the 19th century and has stayed around ever since. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Nick to explore the real relationship between Christianity and scientific inquiry. So thank you so much for joining me today, Nick. I'm really excited to talk about your new book, Magisteria. And in it, you argue that scholars present a narrative that sees science and religion really at war with each other. However, you contest this. Why is that? Well, just to start with a small correction, I think scholars by and large get it right. I think it's the popular narrative that sees more of the war. It's an interesting trend in the last 50 years or so, I guess. So scholarship in that time has really begun to dismantle what was the established narrative of there being a historic conflict between science and religion. And we might talk about how that emerged. But now very few people in the academy would hold to that view. That view hasn't filtered down to a popular level. I work for a think tank called Theos. We've been researching into science and religion for the last few years or so. And part of that research has involved public polling. And the public in the UK, to some extent in the US as well, tends to see there being and there having been a conflict between science and religion, particularly historically. Scholarship doesn't agree, and what this book tries to do is bridge that gap. So where did this idea first come from then? It really originates at the end of the 19th century, in the last third of the 19th century. Um, If you go before then, quite apart from the fact that science and religion aren't the kind of things that they are today, those words change, shift in meanings. Before then, what was science, so natural philosophy and what was religion there were various different words for that were pretty harmonious there are certainly points of tension i'm sure we'll talk about some of them but by and large there was no sense that the two were in in any substantive way at odds with one another but for various reasons in the 19th century that narrative began to emerge and just to pick up a couple of them one was that the beginning of the 19th century if you wanted to go to somebody who was doing science or natural philosophy in England, so you'd go to a cleric, you'd go to an Anglican cleric. By the end of the century, science had become professionalised. And there was a significant loss of that kind of intellectual authority in the 19th century for the church. And that provoked a certain reaction. Second very important trend was the way in which science came to claim a full and complete and comprehensive understanding of the human which was sometimes in tension with views of religion. 
And those views are central to my book, the idea of authority and the idea of humanity. And they get picked up in the last third of the century by several historians who then use them as a lens to view the entire history of science and religion and retell the history through that lens of the, of the tensions and the conflict that does exist in the 19th century. And I'd really like to come back to that tension and that idea of who or what is a human later on. But before we get too far in the conversation, you mentioned that words shift and you mentioned this idea of natural philosophy. And I'd really like to hammer out what that is and how that's different to our modern idea of science. Yes. So it's a very good question. The business of studying nature through a rational lens has been going on for centuries, for millennia. Way before science became modern, people studied the natural world and they studied it in a rational way. It was a philosophical discipline and it's a philosophical discipline that's grounded in the study of nature, hence natural philosophy. But there are also parallel disciplines. There's obviously medicine, which has a separate label. There's mathematics. There's something called natural theology, which is like a more theological reflection on natural philosophy. And then there are specific disciplines like alchemy, which eventually turns into chemistry. And there's obviously astronomy. And astronomy and astrology are twins for many, many, many centuries. So there are these various different disciplines. And they coalesce from the 17th century onwards into one overarching discipline, which by the 19th century becomes professionalised as science. But it's important to remember this. This is a bit of a mixed bag, really. It's a collection of various different disciplines that, for the sake of convenience, often for social convenience, get put under the umbrella of science. But there are various different enterprises and intellectual approaches that constitute that overall category of science. Mm, So if we think about the ancient thinkers then, say Aristotle, he wouldn't have thought of himself as a scientist. No, no. I mean, science comes, our word science comes from scientia, meaning knowledge, effectively. It's the pursuit of knowledge, pursuit of knowledge through the study of nature. But the other important point to make when you're talking about the classical world, slightly less so with Aristotle, but certainly with natural philosophy in the classical world, is that it's not a disinterested activity. So you study nature in order to understand nature, in order to understand the human role within nature, in order to understand the human good. It's almost a religious activity. You can't separate science as an objective, disinterested activity in the the ancient world from, from religion or whatever religion is in the ancient world. They feed into one another. So with this idea of studying nature to understand humans then, would you study it to understand God? Oh, very much so, yes. And there is a whole strand of again, in inverted commas, scientific thought, platonic scientific thought, which argues that God is perfect, eternal, immutable. So the best way you understand God is to assess what in nature is eternal, perfect, immutable. So geometry and mathematics are entryways into understanding God. The book begins with a rather sorry story of a 4th, 5th century female mathematician in North Africa who is, who, who is butchered. But the point I'm making here is that that platonic mathematics she was studying was a quasi-religious activity because that was the best way of understanding the eternal and the perfect which brought you close to God. 
That's really interesting. And so far we've interrogated that word science and now I'd like to move my focus to the word religion because I don't want listeners to think that religion equates to Christianity because you talk about other major world faiths in your book and I wanted to ask you particularly about Islam and how Islamic thinkers have engaged with science and natural philosophy over the centuries. What part do they play in the story? So there is an absolutely fascinating role that Islam plays in the survival and the flourishing of Western science, I'm going to put both those words in inverted commas for all the obvious reasons, between the 9th century and the 13th century in particular. What effectively happens is the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century and the turn of the Eastern Roman Empire away from natural philosophy at around the same time. Although I don't want to exaggerate that too much because classical science has been on its last legs for, for, for quite a while. And you have this plethora of hundreds and hundreds of scientific texts that exist in Greek and Latin. And over the period of 8th, 9th, 10th century, there was this extraordinary translation movement whereby Muslims, particularly in the Abbasid Caliphate based in Baghdad, hire a lot of, interestingly, Syrian Christians who are bi or trilingual to translate these texts into Arabic and indeed other languages, preserve them, and then provide a basis for Islamic scientists to build on them. Interestingly also, the position of the Abbasid Caliphate is at this amazing intellectual crossroads where you also have an influence from the East, from India, and in particular mathematical positional notation, as it's known, the concept of zero, other mathematical ideas are imported. So you have this extraordinary, almost multicultural, intellectual melting pot in three or four hundred years or so, where the classical natural philosophy is preserved, translated and built upon. Now, why that then doesn't flourish into a kind of an Islamic scientific revolution is one of the great kind of counterfactual questions of science. But there's no no reason to doubt that this was an absolutely critical moment in kind of our history of science. So what goes on to happen next then? Well, this is a touchy subject. And um, I, I, I begin my chapter in the book recounting a a slightly animated debate between Stephen Weinberg and uh, and a um, and a scholar historian of of science and Islam in the pages of I think it's the Times Literary Supplement about fifteen years ago, arguing exactly this point. No one doubts that there's an Islamic golden age of science. The question is why doesn't it continue? One of the main arguments is that there is a also a very significant theological critique against natural philosophy, an Islamic theological critique against natural philosophy. This is articulated by a philosopher, theologian called Al-Ghazali. And Islamic science never recovers from that because it doesn't satisfactorily justify itself in the face of this theological critique. There is a certain theology that, as it were, encourages natural philosophy, but also a theology that discourages, that questions it. And the idea is that Islamic science never recovers from this challenge that Al-Ghazali poses to it. I think there's something in that. But there's also something about the fragility, the, the institutional fragility of Islamic science. In, in Christendom at the time, medieval Europe, which is far less scientifically developed, you have universities as independent institutions of learning that are developing and growing. 
And when they are challenged, as they occasionally are by political or ecclesiastical authorities, they have sufficient robustness to keep on going. Those institutional organisations don't exist and don't exist in the same way in the Islamic world, which meant that the, the, the undoubted brilliance that there is there is also a kind of a fragile brilliance and there isn't a sufficient protection against countervailing forces. And also you have to remember that science in and of itself, natural philosophy, is a questioning and therefore a challenging and therefore a potentially destabilising activity and it needs that kind of ability to protect itself. So my argument is that there is an institutional problem as well as just a theological one there. And what is that theological problem then? What is the challenge? It's about the authority of God, effectively. So what does God do? Now, theological believers, Islamic, Christian theological believers, most of them agree that God is omnipotent, although there's a whole question of what that means. But in theory, that means God can do anything. That doesn't mean God does everything. And science, as we know it, is predicated on the idea of a kind of closed causality, if you like. Material cause A results in material effect B. Now, pushed to its extreme, that means, well, God's nothing to do. He just, at best, he lights the blue touch paper and, 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 and heads off into kind of divine sunset. At worst, he doesn't exist at all. And many, many theological thinkers, Christian and Islamic, are perfectly happy with that. It's, a, it's an idea of secondary causality, different from primary causality, and they recognise that creation has its own integrity and that's perfectly compatible with the existence of God. But there are certain strands in religious thought which say, hang on a second, that's limiting God too much. Effectively, it's saying creation is autonomous, and that is not compatible with my understanding of God because God is constantly upholding and intervening and making things happen. And therefore, I don't like this idea of secondary causality. It's not sufficiently um, orthodox and therefore we criticise it and reduce it. Now, I said I don't want to say that's, that's the entire view because it certainly isn't, but there is a strand of that view and science needs to be able to withstand that particular attack. And there's that strand in Christendom as well, isn't there? Yes, there is. And it comes in, in, in various different guises. Um, it's never quite as, as powerful for, for theological reasons, but it doesn't mean there aren't challenges. One of my, one of my favourite bits of the book is um, 1277 in Paris. So Aristotle, the great classical scientist, has been translated from often from Arabic at the beginning of the 13th century and is finding its way into the European intellectual bloodstream. And more and more universities are embracing Aristotelian thought and mostly doing so quite positively. But again, some of the theologians get quite upset about this. And in 1272, the Bishop of Paris issues a series of 217, I think it is, effectively denunciations, uh, arguing that you know, certain things cannot be held by you know, um, thinkers in a, a theological institute or a university. And, and one of the criticisms, that one of, one of the things that can't be held is the view, I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but it's the view that something like that nothing worthwhile can be taught by theology. Now, when you dig underneath that, you realise what's going on in Paris in 1277 is a classic academic dispute. The philosophers in the University of Paris have got Aristotle and they think, brilliant, we can explain the world. The, the theologians usually think Aristotle's good, but don't go too far with it. And so the two departments are fighting with one another. And you can almost hear the philosophers saying, theology teaches you nothing. 
And the Bishop of Paris says, I don't like this very much. Theology does teach you something. And so he tries to close down the teaching of Aristotelian thought, but he doesn't do so very successfully. It retards Aristotelian thought a little bit. But going back to my point about institutional independence, Aristotelian thought, scientific, natural, philosophical thought actually flourishes in Europe in the following century. And the fascinating thing about that whole experience is it gives birth to the thought experiment. Because the impact of this condemnation is that you can't therefore say that this cannot happen. One of the objections was the philosophers, the Aristotelians were saying, this is the way the world works, therefore this cannot happen. And the theologians say, no, that's unduly limiting God. Maybe it can happen. What about this? What about that? And so you get these extraordinary thought experiments about can the same angel or can the same particle be in different places at the same time? Is there life on other planets? Are there other worlds that are inhabited by intelligent life? If there are, what about the incarnation there? No one believed that there were other life forms actually believed them but they were prepared to go through these extraordinary thought experiments ironically as a result of this aristotelian ban it's a lovely example of kind of unintended consequences so this seems to tie in so well to that question that runs throughout your book who or what is a human and that to me from my reading of it at least seems to be that touching point that causes tension to bubble up in the relationship can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, I think this is the most interesting part of the whole story, really. Just to praise it, there are kind of two views of the relationship between science and religion. There's the view you get from sort of the new atheist crowd, which say, actually, they're competing explanations for the same thing. And, and really, I don't think that argument holds water at all, and most people don't. Then there's the view that's associated with Stephen Jay Gould, the late American biologist, that they're noma, they're non-overlapping magisteria. Um, science deals with facts, religion deals with values, and the two have nothing to do with one another. I think that's a more accurate but still an inaccurate view because I think they overlap, and they particularly overlap when it comes to the question of who are we. You know, I can speak to you, I can engage with you as an it, as an object, as a material entity with certain regularities and functions. And when you go to the doctors, that's kind of what you want the doctor to treat you like. But if your friends or your partner or whoever treated you as an it, you'd leave them pretty quickly. Because humans also have a personal existence. They are yous. I can engage with you as a you rather than it. And, and very broadly speaking, I think religion draws on that. So the idea that we're not just material, inert entities, although we are certainly material, but we are personal beings. And the shorthand of that in religious talk has been the soul although that leads you down some very misleading avenues. Now, the challenge has come when either one part or the other has claimed complete authority over the human. So when religion has said humans are just souls, they're just spiritual beings, then science has come back and said, well, hang on a second, they've got livers and spleens and spines and brains, and how does that work out? And there's this lovely tension in the 18th century, particularly in France, when biologists are seen as the greatest threat because they are describing humans as beings, as material beings, and worse than that, actually as machines. The most scandalous book in a century of many scandalous books in, in France is L'Homme Machine by... Uh, French philosopher called La Maitre, who describes humans as a machine. And when that happens, the religious 
react against it. So it's when either party, as it were, goes for a complete land grab and says, we understand the human entirely according to our own definition or understanding. That's when the tensions arrive. So I describe it towards the end as POMA, partially overlapping magisteria. And where they overlap is how we think about ourselves. And I'd like to stay on this tension for a little longer before we go back to perhaps happier shores. And the example that I wanted to ask you about in particular is one that I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with, and it's Galileo and his arrest. Can you tell us about what this reveals about this difficult at times, this fractured relationship between religion and science? The Galileo affair is a classic authority question. Uh, the, The question of tension around humanity tends to come up from the 18th century onwards. Before then, when there's tension, if there's tension, it's around authority. Galileo was a provocative individual. Someone once said he'd rather lose a friend than an argument, and he had a genius for alienating people, but he had a genius, period. He turns his telescope to the skies in 1609, sees mountains on the moon, sees Jupiter's moons. A few years later, sees sunspots. That begins to confirm what has already been thought of for about 30, 40 years or so, which is there's something wrong with the Aristotelian universe. Now, the Aristotelian universe is dominant in Europe, and particularly Catholic Europe at this time, and it says there is a sublunary and a superlunary dimension. Sublunary beneath the moon, superlunary above it. Beneath the moon, all is corruption and decay. Above it, all is permanence and um, eternal perfection. Nothing changes above it. We've never seen anything change above it. What Galileo does is confirm the idea that this view of the universe, this split-level universe, isn't right. And that's a challenge because Aristotle is foundational, not just to science, but to theology as well. Aristotle is the lens through which much Catholic theology, for example, transubstantiation, is, is understood. So by challenging Aristotle, you're not just challenging the view of the universe, you're challenging the entire intellectual architecture. And also, and this is critically important, maths isn't a particularly esteemed academic discipline at the time. It's quite the way down the pecking order, as is astronomy. So who are these mathematicians, who are these astronomers to overturn the entire conceptual order? And there's a third authority question, which is this is at the time of an acute religious conflict between Catholics and Protestants in Europe. And popes who are feeling very vulnerable and see any movement amongst Catholics that looks even vaguely kind of incipiently rebellious, incipiently Protestant, and they're inclined to stamp on it quite hard. So those three questions of authority coalesce with Galileo. At first, it's fine. He actually goes to Rome in 1611, I think it is. He's celebrated. There's a, a cautiously positive response. But some people object. The Pope, eventually, he's actually a good friend of his, Pope Urban VIII, feels that he has been badly mistreated by Galileo. Galileo's book in 1632, The Dialogue Concerning the World Systems, has a character called Simplicio, which basically means simpleton, into whose mouth he puts a number of the Pope's sentiments, and the Pope goes absolutely ballistic. And these things kind of coalesce, and what was originally a quite a positive reception to Galileo turns very quickly into a negative perception. And then what happens, and this seals the deal, Protestants, 
look at what's going on and the conflict with Galileo, and they treat Galileo as the icon of Catholic obscurantism. And so the Galileo myth, the, the story of Galileo, is massively used by Protestants to show how much more intellectual freedom we scripture-loving Protestants have over those papal Catholics. And then later on, the idea that's been picked up by Protestants gets picked up by the French philosophe in the 18th century and by atheists in the 19th century, and then Galileo becomes this icon. And all the subtleties and the questions around intellectual and social and moral authority get crushed, and it becomes just this simple view of science versus religion. Why do you think there seems to be a tendency to reduce it to such a black and white view? I mean, throughout this whole history, when you were talking earlier about that myth of the war between science and religion, why do you think with this discipline in particular, there is that tendency to see it in such a black and white fashion? Yeah, great question. I think there are two things there. One is that it's just what we do. I mean, you know, we categorise politics as left versus right. That's a historical accident of the French Revolution. And anyone who knows anything about politics realizes there's a billion more shades of grey than simply left versus right. We just do that. We're categorising animals and actually the simpler the categories, the happier we are. But secondly, this is about an issue of seminal importance. Who are we and who gets to say and so there's quite a lot riding on this, you could argue. And actually, there genuinely is. So I tell the stories in, in the 19th century of how science, believing it can fully understand the human condition, when allied to the colonial movements of the 19th century, goes out onto the world and sees indigenous peoples and thinks, ah, primitive, basic at least in need of Western tutelage, at worst, actually um, biologically inferior and incapable of attaining our level of intelligence and sophistication and that different guys breathe the eugenic movement. So, you know, this is a very, very serious issue, particularly when allied to political power in the 19th century. And I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which is this idea of shades of grey. And I think a character who really encapsulates that is Isaac Newton. Looking back, I think there's a real tendency for people to think that he was a, a scientific thinker and to really overlook his religious interest because he's a really he's really invested in theology, isn't he? Can you tell us a bit about that? Massively, massively. I mean, he writes far more about theology than he ever does about science, but you wouldn't know it because he doesn't publish it. And the reason he doesn't publish it is because it's not particularly orthodox. He's basically an, an, an Arian, um, which is a reference to a, a fourth century theological debate of doubting about the divinity of, of God's son. He, he studies the scriptures very diligently to try and trace where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from and he comes to the conclusion that it's an ecclesiastical invention and, and, and you really don't say that at the end of the 17th century. He's also, of course, fascinated in alchemy as well. He writes pages and pages of, um, of, of his notebooks on alchemy, which, as I said at the time, is, you know, is, is considered a serious science, although, although by that time quite, quite an esoteric one. So he's absolutely fascinated by this. But in his more serious and influential scientific work, he's also of the view that what he is doing has got a theological significance. So one of his pupils, Richard Bentley, delivers the first Boyle lecture in the 1690s, set up by um, Robert Boyle, as an attempt to use natural philosophy, science, to counter the emerging strands of doubt 
and also against infidels and other religions. It's, it's got quite a punchy um, re- remit. Bentley delivers it. And I think I'm right in saying that Newton writes him. He writes to Newton saying, basically, could you say something good about what your world system does for what I'm trying to do in these lectures? In other words, can you give me a theological take on what you've been doing? And he writes, I can't remember the exact quote, but he says something like, nothing would delight me greater than to know that what I have been doing is of... Um, support and aid to those who want to show the greatness and goodness and perfection of God. So, you know, you have this esoteric and kind of theologically heterodox dimension to Newton, which is very, very important to him. But you also have this scientifically influential dimension, which also has theological significance for him. So at this point, I'd like to take a step back and think about all the centuries that we've covered so far in the conversation Is it fair to say that up until this point, theology has been largely supporting science, but now that dial is beginning to creep the other way and science might be supporting theology instead? Wow. Okay, so there's so much in that. So the first part of that, yes. Um, So just to give one specific example, two specific examples, science is predicated on the idea that the universe creation is lawful. It obeys laws. That's an idea that's imported into the, into the scientific worldview, really from Christian theology. The God of the Old Testament is a lawgiver. He gives moral laws. Well, how much more then is he a lawgiver for creation? Creation is trustworthy because it's lawful and it's lawful because of God. Second example, which I think is critically important, and I owe this to a really brilliant Australian scholar called Peter Harrison. The experiment, if you would talk about experiments in the 17th century, more likely you'd be talking about experimental prayer. That was how the phrase was used. Experiment meant feeling your way to the truth. And you had to feel your way to the truth because humans were fallen. Not just morally fallen, but also intellectually fallen. The alternative view, which is the view that got associated with Aristotle, was effectively you could think your way to natural philosophical truth. And Francis Bacon in the beginning of the 17th century and others think, no, no, why, why do you think you can trust your mind to be perfect any more than you can trust your morals to be perfect? You can't think your way to the truth. You've got to feel, experience or experiment your way to the truth. So there are two critical ways in which um, theology supports science. I mean, there's a, there's a I, I quote, I love Gulliver's Travels, Jonathan Swift. There's a brilliant satirical part in the third part of that. And when he goes to the Institute of Legado, which is his piss take of the, of the Royal Society, and he mocks it mercilessly. Because at the time, experiments to weigh air seemed absolutely absurd. And there were some absolutely hideous experiments, you know, pulling live animals apart to see how they worked. Why would you do that? And the answer that late 17th century theologians gave was that you did it to understand the glory of God. I mean, they even said that you could do this on a Sabbath which for a Protestant society is remarkable. Sabbath was for rest, for contemplating God. But this was a way of contemplating God. Boyle suggested science might be an activity in heaven because it was about recognising the beauty of what God was capable of doing, his, his creation. So in all these different ways, theology was enormously supportive. There are counter voices, and I recognise that in the book. But by the time science becomes its own self-perpetuating enterprise in the 19th century. In a sense, theology isn't needed. It's like a child leaving home. There's been a certain degree of protection and guidance and help and fortification. But at a certain time, the child leaves home. And in the 19th century is when it does leave home. 
and it's quite a painful experience in, in, in some ways. By the time you get to 1900, science is independent, has its own institutions and organisations and objectives and so on and so forth, and religion has morphed into something slightly different. And the book, the last part of the book, talked about different ways in which these are now different, clearly different entities. The, the child is no longer living at home, but they still get entangled over, over various things. And sometimes that entanglement is, is critical and negative, such as the famous Scopes monkey trial. And other times it's, 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 it's much more um, positive and, and, and supportive. Can you tell us more about that trial? Yes. 1925, Dayton, Tennessee. The Scopes Monkey Trial is a massive media circus. Ostensibly, it's fought over whether a book, Hunter's Civic Biology, can be used to teach in schools. But it then becomes a massive causa's belly from the fundamentalists in America who reject evolution. Now, that spawned a movement that we're still very familiar with today. And it's very clear that that is a reaction against established science and it's completely untenable. But it is worth picking apart why this becomes such an important issue. Civic biology doesn't just teach biology, doesn't just teach evolution, it basically also teaches eugenics. At the time, schools don't buy textbooks, parents buy textbooks. So parents, particularly in poor rural south, are buying textbooks that have this theory that advocates the sterilisation of basically people like them. Poor, indigent, illiterate, so on and so forth. And there's a certain reaction against this. And the great populist, um, William Jennings Bryant, who had stood for president as a leader of the People's Party in the 1890s, leading fundamentalist in America, takes up this cause, fights it. Dayton in Tennessee is the little town where it's fought over, the local town authorities think this is a great way to get the world's media in and indeed the entire world is looking at, at this trial. It's a brilliant publicity stunt to put Dayton on the map. And Clarence Darrow, who is a famously acerbic, brilliant lawyer, takes the opposing position. So the whole thing turns into this massive media circus, which is theoretically about this one issue about teaching evolution, Darwinism, in Tennessee schools, but actually draws in so many different questions, including the question of authority, including the question of who gets to say what is the value of the human and, and, and whether some people, some humans, have such little value to society that it is actually for the wider social good that they be sterilised. So for my final question then, you have written so much about this relationship between science and religion. Which do you think benefited the most? I guess I would say, without wishing to sound like a kind of Oscar acceptance speech, humanity benefited the most, really. There is no doubt that the human capacity to understand and control creation through science has been transformative to a truly inconceivable degree of human condition and in global condition, although quite not necessarily so happily there as we're, as we're discovering. But here's the interesting thing. That was one of the arguments that the Protestants in particular were making at the beginning of the 17th century, the idea that Adam actually had control over nature. His job, or Adam and Eve's job, was to exercise legitimate, just authority over nature. The fall destroys that, and we become 
either victims of nature ourselves or we exercise that control in a harmful way. So we need to kind of try and reverse the effect of the fall and regain Adam's encyclopedic knowledge over all creation. And so humanity benefits from science, but both of them, at least according to this story, benefit from the theological justification for that in the first instance. The kind of creatures we are are ones who are mandated to exercise just control over creation through our knowledge. That was Dr Nicholas Spencer. His book, Magisteria, The Entangled Histories of Science and Religion, is published by One World and available to buy now. You can also read Patricia Farrer's review of Magisteria in the April issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.